Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode, we are. I'm delighted to have Dr. Aaron Kearns from the University of Alabama on board. Uh, Aaron has done me the great favour of doing a guest lecture for my master's students today, a really excellent lecture on lying about terrorism. And this is a lot based off of the research that first introduced me to Aaron's work. It's, uh, I was saying in my introduction to the class that uh, it's one of those articles you read where you're just going, why on earth didn't I think of that? It's such a, such a neat question, such a neat uh, topic to look at. And that's why it's great to have Aaron on board uh, for today's class. So, or today's class, today's podcast. So, Aaron, thank you so much for agreeing to be on today. Well, thank you so much for having me both on the podcast and in your class. You. No problem, no problem. So, harking back to the very first episodes that we used to do in Talking Terror, I used to always ask people, how did you first become involved in this, uh, this area of research? So, how did you become involved? So it's a great question, uh, and one that if you just looked at my CV, you'd think, okay, she was a poli-sci psych major, 9-11 was freshman year of college, this totally makes sense. And while that's an easy story to paint, it's not at all the accurate one. Um, in reality, I didn't even think that terrorism was a thing to study, despite being a poli-sci and psych major in undergrad in those formative years right after 9-11. Um, it just if, you know at that point in time there really weren't classes being taught on on the subject in either discipline in at least the U.S. university that I went to. Um, and it wasn't a subject that I actually really considered studying until my PhD, and it wasn't what I had initially come into my PhD thinking that I wanted to study. So it was I think really sort of a series of happy accidents um, that led me to something that I'm you know, really interested in and really passionate about studying now. So what did you go into the PhD thinking you were going to study? Uh, so I went into the PhD thinking that I wanted to expand off the work that I'd done both as an undergrad and a master's student looking at sexual violence. And I was interested in expanding that out into systematic sexual violence in the context of conflict um, and quickly realized that doing the necessary reading to get caught up really fully in that literature is, it frankly took a pretty dramatic mental health toll right. on me. Um, just the, the subject matter was so bleak and disturbing that I realized within that first semester that I just absolutely mentally could not handle studying the subject. And, but you were <laughs> able to mentally handle studying terrorism. What, like, obviously, it, everything is so individual, mm -hmm. and there are some people who will have no problem studying uh, systematic sexual violence during conflict and have great problems with terrorism. What was different for you about studying terrorism? I think with studying terrorism, and particularly the way that I go about studying terrorism, is that I'm focused so much less on individual you know, attacks, incidents, mm -hmm. groups, the direct propaganda. I, I don't, frankly, I think I have a little bit more of an emotional distance okay. to the material that I'm studying for the most part, by virtue of doing this, either looking at public perceptions of terrorism and counterterrorism, media representations and misrepresentations of terrorism and counterterrorism, or looking at this from you know, sort of more of the data side mm -hmm. and much having, I think, less of that direct sort of personal connection with the material is how I'm able to stomach it day in and day out without it having you know, much of a, an emotional sort of impact on me. And this is one of the problems a lot of us face is, like, how can we get that distance? How can we 
really make sure that this research isn't affecting us uh, negatively because there's no data, no finding is worth having that effect, that negative uh, psychological effect on individuals. Why do you left that research behind? Was the, are there any lessons that you drew from carrying out that kind of research initially that, you're, that you find yourself applying to this day within your analysis of terrorism? Um, within the analysis, I actually I don't see it. And I didn't get very far, frankly. Mm. I got maybe three months okay. into that before realizing that it wasn't something that was a fit for me. I think the more important thing is, is really recognizing, okay, I got three months in. Why did it take three months for me to realize that I was having nightmares every yeah. night and that I shouldn't be studying this um, and being much more candid and open about, about the difficulties that we as researchers who study very dark, horrible things that human beings do to each other, you know, where those limits are for each individual person and being really aware and it's not a sign of weakness, it's not some, yeah. you know, you're not destined to fail as an academic if you can't handle these things, so there's different sort of ways that, um, that we can go about really taking care of ourselves while doing this work and being really candid about that with colleagues, with students here in a podcast, yeah. and, like, And that's why... Like when you opened up the lecture today with the with the students from our MSc in terrorism and counterterrorism, you you started talking about your background and you started talking about and you talked throughout about the process of doing a PhD. And I think that's that's one of the most one really useful thing that I hope that we can drive from this and other podcasts is that our listeners aren't just hearing about okay, what are our findings? What is it that we know from all this research? It's learning about that process and learning about how to look after ourselves as well. Like I know I used to, when I was doing interviews and I had a really dark interview, I'd go and try and find the most mindless comedy possible, like, and just try and distance myself from it. But I, I think it's vitally important to have a message uh, to our listeners, like, like what you're saying is just mind yourself as well and know, know what your limits are. So what was the process then uh, for you in deciding what topic within terrorism studies that you were going to focus on? What was it that drew you to your, your topic? Gosh, it's a great question. Um, I think it's in, in a way also sort of a series of happy accidents mm -hmm. and having, just having the intellectual conversations with peers about, you know, what do we, what do we know, what don't we know? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in terms of the work online about terrorism, this really came from some conversations that Joe Young, my PhD supervisor, and I had my first year as a student um, and with a then undergrad of ours, really just kind of thinking about these, these puzzles in the literature about you know, things like why are so many attacks not claimed, what are different ways that lies can be told, um, and really deciding beyond that, you know, I think like many PhD students, it's a the sort of double-edged sword of I'm interested in everything, but where is some place that I can contribute something to yeah. the literature? And something Joe said to me, I don't know, probably first year as well, was thinking about, you know, where is your competitive advantage? That, you know, I don't fluently speak, I don't speak actually really any Arabic, so I'm not going to study any Islamic groups. I don't have that background in the context, the history, the religion, the language, none of these things. Um, so thinking about where the competitive advantage is and having a background also in psychology and political science as well as criminology and public policy. Having the experimental background, thinking about where that could 
make contributions to the field, thinking more about these public perceptions and misperceptions, particularly, um, and using those methodological and theoretical skill sets and applying them in ways that are a little bit different. Okay. So when we get into the nuts and bolts of the topic that we're going to focus on in today's, in today's podcast, we're this question about why, why and when do terrorists lie? Before we can get into that, what exactly do you mean by lying? How do you define what a lie is by a terrorist group? Sure, I mean, and there's many ways that this, you know, this could take shape. Um, with respect to these projects, it's talking specifically about you know, lying about responsibility or lack of responsibility for the attack. Um, and this stems from an assumption in much of the literature that if terrorism is about you know, achieving a strategic goal, that claiming credit is part of the process to send this message, this costly signaling, um, and that when an attack isn't claimed, that somehow that message might get lost. So. We see this as sort of this assumption, but the vast majority of attacks aren't claimed. So what are some reasons, some rational strategic reasons that might still be able to explain this? And then what are some of the other ways that, you know, that groups can lie about their responsibility or lack of responsibility for violence? So if an attack is unclaimed, how do we know it's a terrorist attack? That is an excellent <laughs> question, right? So we think about, you know, of course, there's, you know, there's no singular definition of terrorism, yeah. which I assume anyone listening to this podcast is well aware of that, so I don't need to dive into that debate. Um, but thinking about, you know, particularly thinking about the, um, you know, about the, the target, this, the, this apparent goal of this, and this is one of the big challenges that, you know, people like the coders at the Global Terrorism Database have in, in in assessing and developing this. Um, and that's something that I'm glad I don't have to deal with the nuts and bolts yeah. of that on a daily basis. Um, and I'm very, very grateful that there are open source you know, data sets like that to rely on. And one of the things that I've you know, been really conscious of in, in my work is tying my definitions of what terrorism is to something that somebody else has coded mm. to ensure that there's not any sort of you know, unconscious biases and what I'm considering terrorism that might even unbeknownst to me be furthering my own, you know, my own assumptions, conscious or not. Yeah. So you mentioned there the Global Terrorism Database mm -hmm. and within your, your research uh, with Joe and elsewhere that you've utilized the GTD uh, to a great extent mm -hmm. and to, uh, to come up with some really fascinating findings and to, uh, to ask some really interesting questions with it. For any researcher out there who is utilizing the GTD, what do you feel that they need to know before they can go about doing that research? It, like, you obviously can't take everything at face value. You need mm -hmm. to know in depth. What is it that you need to know about the GTD before you can utilize it as a data source? Like I mean, know. I think the first and most important thing is reading the codebook mm -hmm. enough times that you know the order that the variables are in in the data set um, and understanding where the coding limitations and the coding changes are and understanding that you know, you're not, no, there just wasn't no terrorism in 1993. <laughs> um, you know, understanding where there's differences in coding over time um, and how that might be able to, might be conditioning any of the results. I'm not saying never go back you know, earlier than 1998, but 
understanding where coding differences might be influencing findings mm -hmm. and, and acknowledging that really clearly, understanding what is coded and what is not coded. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, having just sort of the general contextual views of how communication has changed over time, how, um, and this is you know, standard obviously practice in, in the quantitative analysis, but controlling for things like you know, freedom of the press, democracy, understanding that it's not, you know, it's not that there's no terrorism necessarily happening in parts of the world, but there's parts of the world where we're just never going to hear about it, there aren't going to be reports. And treating that with some skepticism and also with missing, you know, with missing data, missing countries when you ha bring in these control variables, what's getting dropped yeah. from your analyses and how might that be influencing your results? Yeah. No, it's, and for any listener who wants to, to hear more in depth about that, I would hugely advise you to listen to the the episode with Laura Dugan from series one where Laura talks about this but it's worth going back to and when we're analyzing any piece of research that's utilizing a data source like this we need to have that understanding first when we're critically analyzing anyway people didn't come here didn't listen uh, for discussions about the ins and outs of the GTD wanted to know about why terrorist groups lie so why do they why do why would a terrorist group lie so, I mean, there's a number of reasons why a group might lie about their responsibility for a particular attack. Um, the most prevalent lie is just sort of the lie of omission, perpetrating an attack and not claiming credit for it. Um, that's certainly, though, not the only way that, that groups lie about the violence. One of the um, presumably more common, but again, we can't sort of measure these to know exactly how prevalent the other lies are, would be falsely claiming credit for an attack that another individual or group has perpetrated. Um, and we see this, you know, in, the, in recent years, this is most re frequently discussed with groups like ISIS, where they claim credit for things like the Las Vegas shooting. Um, shortly thereafter, or right before that, they claimed credit for a shooting at a casino in the Philippines, which turned out to be a disgruntled employee, had absolutely nothing to do with them, but they derive benefit from the public thinking that they have the capacity to be carrying out these mass, you know, massive attack in the United States, um, carrying out violence around the world. This helps their image, so they don't have much to lose by claiming credit for those those attacks. So, do you think, like, like the extreme example of the the Las Vegas attack, which most of our listeners would be aware of, um, and we did have an episode where we're looking at that definitional debate on whether that's terrorism or not and that's a whole different thing as well we could have that linked to our gtd episode <laughs> as well um, do you think people believe them when they say that um i mean amongst the public there were enough people i think that in, and i'm speaking to, about the american public and this is you know there's, i don't recall that there was necessarily any um polling data about mm. that specific claim and I'm actually now realizing because I put a field a study in the field a couple of weeks after that and was asking about Vegas and that was not the main point and mm. I should have asked that question <laughs> so if I could go back to 2017 me I would change that survey slightly um, but there were I think enough it was enough Enough people in the U.S. public believed it, at least for a few days. It was covered and sensationalized in the media. And maybe it was ISIS responsible, question mark, mm -hmm. but with the constant running banner head on CNN or whatever news source, it still is putting that implicit you know, um, connection between the two in people's minds and thinking you know, that, that fear that you know, is instilled when you think that you know, this 
big boogeyman group is able to perpetrate an attack, even if it's later you know, shown that there's no connection, are people really you know, updating their views in real time like that or not? Yeah, so it, like if we look at those, that main aim of what terrorism is trying to achieve, that fear in a wider audience and the direct victims of the attack, it's a low-cost way of achieving this. Absolutely. Yeah. You would often hear... Um, You'd often hear this talk of false flag attacks as well. And I think for people, if they're not aware of the literature, they might think, oh, this is what this is about. Is, I would like, is this about false flags as well? Not a ton in this. I mean, so, and being clear, and again, I think any, any listener here understands that false flags is not the Alex Jones, everything is a false flag, mm. an inside job, lizard people, whatever other insanity is added to that. <laughs> um, but thinking about this as, you know, as, as false flag attacks, meaning when the perpetrating group is actually able to carry out an attack in a way that looks like their opponent was responsible, and then the ramifications of that sort of fall upon the opponent and the actual perpetrating group wins here. Is the lecture or is are the papers about that? No, not exactly, because we don't know how often that happens because a lot of things need to fall in place. You know, a group actually capable of pulling this off, pulling it off for a long enough time for the, their lie to be believed, but not so long that we don't now know it's a lie. Um, and there's just sort of a lot of preconditions here. I would assume that this does not happen particularly frequently or else we would hear about at least some of them more often and really there there are you know in doing the research for this there's handfuls of examples so yes it, it exists but not as some prevalent phenomenon unless people are a lot better at lying and keeping things secret for long periods of time than common sense says they would be able to this period this issue of time as well how do you factor that in like, how quickly would we normally see a claim come in for a terrorist attack? Like, obviously, when you're using the GTD, they've had that year at least. And mm-hmm. So we've got that factor in. But have you able, been able to, to assess that at any stage? Like, you know, I haven't. And that's partially a function of data availability mm-hmm. in that there isn't a, you know, here's the date the attack occurred and here's the date of the claim. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that there's the sort of the conventional public wisdom is that, you know, no one's claimed the attack yet. Like, that's actually the most common outcome. So we shouldn't be waiting with bated breath mm-hmm. for a claim that probabilistically is not going to happen. And if you go um, onto your Twitter feed after yeah. an attack and hear You'll that... You'll definitely yes. hear me saying this exact thing with <laughs> a link of like, stop! <laughs> yeah. um, I can guarantee that. You know, can predict that one near perfect certainty. <laughs> um, but in terms of you know time, otherwise, thinking about that, that lag between an attack and a claim, it's, it's a good question. I'm not really sure. Um, you know, if you look at even an attack like, like 9-11, yeah. Bin Laden didn't officially claim credit for that for nearly three years, in part because did he really need to? It was, you know, it was already obvious. And that, that is one of the arguments for why a group wouldn't claim credit for an attack. It's like, why bother? Everybody already knows it was us anyway. Yeah. And is this actually, when we look at something like the high-profile attacks, like 9-11, and you, you obviously, you've got that issue about they didn't really need to claim there, but most of the high-profile attacks, people would see, they would see a group connected, either through a claim or through an attribution. But most of the terrorist attacks that we 
when we look at the GTD, aren't these high-profile attacks. They're ones that we will have never heard of before, even if we are spending our careers analysing that. Do you f feel that people have this false idea of what terrorism is and therefore a false expectation about the role of claiming attack and taking responsibility? Absolutely. And I mean, you can't blame members of the public who don't spend their lives studying this very happy topic we've yeah. chosen. Um, but looking at I me, mean, looking just at terrorist attacks in the U.S. in the last decade or so, as someone who is an American studying terrorism, actually going into the GTD and looking case by case, there are certainly attacks which, yeah, I understand why it's coded as terrorism, but I've never heard of it because, you know, media didn't really cover it. It's not something that it didn't happen near where I was living. The average, you know, the modal terrorist attack does not kill a single person, which is something that I think a lot of people in the public struggle with that connection, where they assume that terrorism must kill people. And the converse is that because it killed a lot of people, it must be terrorism. Yeah. It's terrifying, so it must count. Yeah. Like, no, like, that's, not how we, that's not how we define things. And these are some of the, you know, debates I get into, I think, mostly with friends and family, where it's like, no, really, like, we shouldn't call you know, I'm going to go back to Vegas just for a second. We shouldn't call this terrorism just because it was terrifying. That's, that alone is not enough. The and that, and that's not a value judgment. That's yeah. not saying that one is worse than the other. Though. Not at so, all. It's just the understanding and the necessity to be able to categorize violence so that we can better understand the category we're speaking to and looking at you know, overlaps between different forms of violence and how explanations of one can help us understand explanations of the other, but also there are these divergences. And when we start smooshing everything together, we're not going to get anything meaningful out of it because you know, homicide versus terrorism, there's, there can be similarities, but there's huge differences as well. Exactly, exactly. What's a hot potato? What is a hot potato? When uh, really? you look at your research, what do you mean? What do I mean by hot potato problem? I think you're bringing this up because I wish I could go back yeah. and uh, <laughs> change the label on this yeah. if I could redo this paper. Um, what we meant by this was sort of these situations where there is quite a bit of you know, political tension and unrest and a number of active groups of sort of varying on the scale of nonviolent to potentially violent um, and when an attack happens where, say you're a far left group, you didn't perpetrate it, it's sort of ambiguous what the goal is. And while you didn't perpetrate it, you're also basically sort of blaming the other ideology, so say far right in this example. So you don't want your group or any group vaguely similar to yours to receive any sort of blame, backlash, etc., for the attack. So instead you push sort of the responsibility onto um, the other sort of broad umbrella ideology. And when we look at this, what would be... What would your suspicion be of the prevalence of, of these? And not suspicion, what would your analysis be in relation to the prevalence of these? I wouldn't think that they're particularly prevalent. Mm. Again, it's you know, having the data to actually be able to say this. I wouldn't think this is particularly prevalent because of all of the structural and situational sort of context that's necessary to have a, you know, a time and a place where you have multiple groups from multiple different ideologies and there's not some sort of clear hegemonic group necessarily um, and in a situation where there's a lot of just sort of uncertainty and instability amongst the public um, and amongst the you know, government actors they're really 
I wouldn't think that these are hugely prevalent. Mm -hmm. um, where there's then also this large scale attack and people aren't quick to claim credit and really maintain that they were the ones responsible, but rather is trying to shift blame onto other groups. I just, I don't think the situation occurs that frequently. No. So you talk within your analysis about the principal agent problem. Yes. What, for any of our listeners who aren't aware of it, could you first of all explain what the principal agent problem is? How does this apply then to lying about terrorism? How did you answer your colleagues? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, think about the principal agent problem as, you know, essentially it's this, the disconnect between leadership and the agents, um, you know, sort of the foot soldiers, where there might be misaligned incentives, um, there might be sort of different end goals or views about how to achieve perhaps the same end goal. So this can factor into lies in a number of potential ways. Um, you know, thinking about that that disconnect, and you know, I, I liken this often to having a boss who tells you to do something, and you're like, yeah, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to do that, or I agree with the outcome, but I'm going to do it my own way because I think my way is better. Um, and in the context of terrorism, this can take shape, I think probably most prevalently, either with an agent who tells his boss he's responsible for something that he didn't actually do because it's an attack that nobody else has claimed, it would benefit the group, mm -hmm. and you basically, you're free riding on somebody else's work and you get you know, bonus points in the eyes of your boss by doing this. The flip side of that would be doing, you know, perpetrating an attack that perhaps wasn't directly sanctioned mm -hmm. um, and things go awry a little bit and you know you're going to get in trouble if you admit you did it, so you just keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. And when we assess this, and when we're looking at the application of the principal agent problem, how, or, or your research as a whole, how can this then be applied outside of academia, but be effective in a CT uh, surrounding? How can it be effective for practitioners to have this theoretical understanding and the findings that, that have come with it as well. How can we apply this? Yeah, I mean, the, it's a great question. I guess I, I think sort of most clearly, um, actually to part of my dissertation research on this, where I was surveying um, police officers in three departments in the D.C. metro area. And each of the police chiefs in these departments is like, yeah, we engage in tons of community policing. I think it's super beneficial for counterterrorism. Um that you know, here's everything, look at our website and all of the policies that we have in place, and then surveying officers in these departments. And these were you know, surveys done at their roll call. So it was fairly, I think it was something like 65% of each department filled out the survey. So pretty big okay. samples in each, in each of these departments. Um, and all of the people who are, you know, the street-level bureaucrats, the ones who are on the ground, who should be actually the ones implementing these community policing policies and looking at what that, you know, how that connects to officer support for the practice in counterterrorism um, versus other crimes. And seeing within each of these departments that there was huge variation in what officers themselves say they do. So the boss is like, yeah, we do this all the time. And even within the same squad, within the same department or division within the department, huge variation in what officers say they actually do and how much they support the practice. So I think there can be this assumption that you know, here are the directives from, from leadership and that that actually trickles down as implemented mm -hmm. um, in the way that is envisioned, when in reality, 
humans don't always behave that way. So thinking about you know mechanisms to sort of checks and balances. Mm-hmm. So checking that policy policies are actually implemented in the way they're envisioned to be implemented. Okay. No, like one of like. I always love a paper, I always love a piece of research that challenges our assumptions and challenges the myth. And the thing that stands out when we look at your kind at your research is this this foundational understanding that actually eighty five percent or so of all terrorist attacks go unclaimed. And going back to this question I had in relation to timing, but timing in a different sort of way, are we seeing that at different stages during... Now, this is difficult to draw from the, the kind of data because obviously it is all unclaimed. Are there different stages of, of, a, of a struggle, of a, of a conflict, of a terrorist campaign where you're more likely to see a higher rate of unclaimed attacks than at other stages. So, um, like one could propose, propose that at the launch of a, of a group, they want to get their message out there, so they want their name coming out there, whereas at other stages they don't. Is there any time within a certain campaign that you're... Or is that impossible to find? So I don't know that it's impossible. I'll say... Sounds like a paper we could co-author. Yeah. I, 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 I don't want to speak beyond what I've been able to, what I've you know done thus far with the data. Um, so thinking about from a specific campaign, we can't exactly analyze that because we only know which you know which attacks mm. are um, either claimed or attributed yeah. to Al Qaeda. We don't know which attacks might have taken place in you know in Afghanistan, Pakistan that that were Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm but they just didn't claim it, it yeah. wasn't attributed to them. So we can't really know that in some ways. Um, one way though that that could be examined would be looking at, you know, looking at a specific country that didn't have too many actors, you know, that didn't have too many groups that were active or didn't have too many groups that were active that would likely be targeting the same, you know, having the same types of targets during the same time period mm-hmm. as a way to potentially analyze this. But then that introduces other issues with claiming because if you're the only group in you know in this country at this time who is perpetrating you know say you know um, environmental you know furthering of environmental rights, do you need to claim? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or is it like yeah okay you know if somebody is you know freeing a bunch of animals at a you know a, a makeup testing facility, we can assume that it is an animal rights group. Because like who else would be doing that? Um, so there's not the need to claim like there would be in a more competitive environment. Yeah, no, I, I hadn't thought about that. If there's only one one actor in there present, yeah, that's no, it's key. That that I think there could be a paper there. I think there could uh, yeah, be it could be something there. Um, <laughs> So your research is, I'm sorry, thinking about a question that you're asked by one of my students. I'm pointing actually at the desk where he was sitting at. You were asked about the difference between here in Europe, you're more likely to have qualitative research, whereas in the States, it's dominated by quantitative analysis and terrorism. It's quite a, quite a broad brushstroke analysis of what, of what goes on. But if you were to advise a qualitative researcher who has access to terrorist groups to interviewing terrorist groups and say these are the questions I would really like to understand about 
why or when or why uh, or how they lie about terrorism. What mm-hmm. kind of questions do you feel that your quantitative analysis of the GTD and other sources haven't been able to tell you that you would love to find out? Oh gosh, that is a great question. This is like my like, you know kind of a dream scenario, right? Yeah. So I haven't given it that much thought, but now I'm going to be sad that I don't have the actual ability to answer these questions <laughs> yet. Um, I mean, I think really just having the broad, open-ended questions about how are these decisions made without, I would be really hesitant to actually ask any leading question about anything from my findings yeah. at all, mm-hmm. um, because it's entirely possible that we're completely wrong and that there are other factors going on that are not things that we're able to systematically measure and you know control for in our quantitative analyses there might be processes that are completely unbeknownst to us so i think really wanting to hear hear it from a perspective where it's just a very broad you know how does this process take shape what are some of the considerations um in in perpetrating violence, and not even, even asking specifically about claiming, you know, at the onset, really thinking about, is that even a consideration? Is it something that, you know, in how does this vary, you know, within different sort of ranks within a group? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, in a hypothetical world where you get to replicate this with all sorts of different groups, mm-hmm. how does this vary across context and groups and ideologies as well? It would be really interesting, I think, as well, to find out, like, for the lies, and we're talking about unclaiming here a lot, but you, you touch on, on other forms of lying as well. It would be interesting to see if the, the lies that we're seeing externally, are, there, are they happening internally as right. well? Like it's, and so how it changes for the different audiences or how mm-hmm. it stays the same yeah. as well. I think it would be, yeah, it would be really interesting to, to carry that out. It's just, it raises so many different avenues for, for research to go on to go down it's uh, I think it, it's it's fascinating you you touch on as well you look at the differences between the situational factors the attack characteristics mm-hmm. and the group factors could you go into a bit of detail about what you propose the effects of each of those could be on the choices made by the group sure so in terms of some of the situational factors I mean considering this idea of competitors which you know we referenced a few moments ago um, but thinking about you know is there are more competitors so groups that are operating in the same time and space who have at least a somewhat similar goal or ideology um, this might increase the likelihood that a group would claim an attack as a way to signal to potential supporters that they are you know, out there doing things, um, signaling their strength and capability, potentially a sort of an outbidding process with other groups, um, that you would you know, potentially see, see more claims in that context. The converse, when there have been a lot of attacks recently in a particular t- country, you might see less likelihood of claiming in each additional attack because the public gets fatigued to this increased potential risk of backlash from the government, um, you know these are some of the expectations there. In terms of some of the other attack level factors, um, so certainly fatalities, and this is these, are, you know, to be clear, these are not fully our original arguments. No. This is drawing. No. We are not the first to have ever studied mm. this. This is drawing from you know debates in the literature um, that go back a couple of, of decades prior to this. Mm. But you know, thinking about. Um, a curvilinear relationship that fatalities would have with the likelihood of claiming. So 
if you don't if the attack doesn't kill anybody or if the attack kills a lot of people we expect there to be less claiming because it might be viewed either as a failure, as a, whoa, you've gone way, way too far, and expect to see more claiming when there's sort of this mid-range of fatalities. Um, additionally, considering who is being killed, you know, there's a difference between killing a lot of civilians and killing a lot of members, you know, military members, you know, non-combat, not, you know, not civilians, not combatants, but, you know, non-combatants, things like the USS Cole mm -hmm. bombing. Um, so considering that, you might see you know, more claiming with a suicide attack for a number of reasons, you know, in part because if there's you know, remains left that are identifiable, that's a pretty clear indicator of who was responsible. Um, but additionally, it can signal this, I mean, that our fighters have this ultimate commitment to the cause. They're willing to kill themselves in furtherance of our goal. That's how sure we are that we're right, etc. And then group level factors as well, no doubt play a role here. Um, you know, the group's own goals and ideologies. But you can't empirically test that because to empirically test group level factors, you have to know the group that was responsible either through a claim or an attribution of credit, which then drops 50 some percent of the observations when the attack is neither claimed nor attributed and thus we can't include any group level factors. If, are you going to continue this research looking at outlawing and terrorism? Is this going to, like, there's, because there is so much more that you can look into in this, so are you? Are you yes, going? I would very much like to. I have a few project ideas that have just been sort of percolating for, as I start doing the math of how long, <laughs> longer than I'm comfortable admitting. Okay. Um, and this is something that's certainly thinking about ways to expand this both theoretically and empirically, um, you know, I'm want to continue with it. The, the challenge, of course, is the lack of data available to be able to test arguments about the other lies. And the, you know, while I loved the hypothetical question about being able to interview um, you know, members of a terrorist group, it's not particularly feasible, at least not for me to be able to do. If anyone out there, though, wants to do this and can do it, let me know. Um, so thinking about where, where are ways to expand this that are methodologically sound as mm -hmm. well. And what else are you going to what else are you concentrating on at the moment? We've concentrated for this this episode on on your research about lying about terrorism about going in depth in this, but what else what else have you are you working on outside of this? Sure. So you know continuing work that I've done on media representations and misrepresentations, both of terrorism itself and of counterterrorism practices, particularly looking at the use of torture and interrogations. Um, looking both at how media represent those two things and connecting that to public opinion um, and frankly a lot of misperceptions about both terrorism and counterterrorism, and trying to figure out ways to correct public opinion on this <laughs> to bring it more in line with data. So that'll take me the rest of my career. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and are you looking at all forms of media there with that? Mostly looking at entertainment media okay. um, with the or the the depictions of torture specifically, mm -hmm. and then news media depictions of terrorism. Okay. Um, Continuing some of the work that I've done as well, looking at relationships between law enforcement and the public and trying to build sort of more cooperative relationships um, in counterterrorism, you know, increasing likelihood of citizens picking up the phone and you know, reporting suspicious activity, even being able to identify what activity is suspicious. Mm -hmm. 
um, and then law enforcement willingness to engage more proactively to help foster those relationships with the public. And how are you going about that? Um, so that is some of the survey research with police officers and in departments that stems from my dissertation and some follow-up work after that. And then public opinion um, survey embedded experiments in the U.S. with national samples of American adults. No, it sounds fascinating. We'll have to get you back on for another episode <laughs> to talk about those as well. So I've been given out to a lot by, um, by some people who've listened to the podcast and said... At the beginning, I used to always talk to people and ask them about the work that had influenced them uh, within their careers, what kind of research. And I've, of the last season or so, I've forgot that I haven't, I haven't been engaging in it. But, and I haven't, I haven't asked you to prepare this or anything, but is there any researcher or researchers who particularly influenced your career and the way that, that they, what they've written, the research they've done, and how they've approached uh, things? And if, what would they be? Um, or if for our listeners, what pieces do you think they should be reading that have influenced your career? I know okay. this is on the That's spot. That's such now. a huge question. Yeah. So I'm going to give perhaps a little bit of a cop-out answer, but yeah. I have a reason for it. So I think because, um, because of the interdisciplinary nature of my background yeah. and choosing a dissertation committee made up of two political scientists and two criminologists, I really, um, and I think, I really have, you know, focused really quite broadly across the various disciplines um, and approaches to understanding terrorism. So it's it's really impossible for me to pick one or even one person from each discipline. Mm. But I think really having this cross disciplinary understanding um, and the acknowledgement that no discipline, no methodology can possibly explain all of this. Yep. That we we all need to be learning from each other and reaching out and having these, you know, these conversations with each other about, about the work and considering what have, you know, what have other disciplinary approaches, methods, sort of what is just sort of, you know, common sense at that point in another discipline's work on terrorism. Um, or what have they already tried and like, yeah, this doesn't make any sense at all. So like, there's no point in, you know, in beating the dead horse. Um, and really thinking about you know this from this cross-disciplinary perspective because I think that's the best way to actually understand a form of violence that is in itself so diverse. Mm -hmm. And I also have been given out to for not asking the final question I used to always ask about how you assess the health of terrorism research at the moment. So it, a lot of it was based on this proposal that there is a stagnation in terrorism research going back to Mark Sageman in 2014. What do you think, as someone who is immersed in the terrorism research literature, how do you assess the overall health of terrorism research at the moment? I mean, I'm probably a little, perhaps a little bit too bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in some ways, which is not always my, uh, my natural inclination, but I think being still fairly fresh out of a PhD and seeing... Um, you know, a lot of really interesting, important work coming out from, you know, people across disciplines and across universities, countries, etc. Um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, where to push this going forward, I think, again, more of these cross-disciplinary um, collaborations are certainly critically important and really the importance of, of primary data collection where possible. Um, 
much as you know is one of the sort of hindrances in my discipline as a whole with criminology is that if you're relying only on publicly available data there's only so many truly interesting questions you can ask with that that there needs to be a push for and, a, and training in primary data collection of you know of various different sources whether this is actually interviewing you know, individuals who have engaged in terrorism or looking at you know propaganda you know terrorism propaganda or public opinion surveys on you know on terrorism really diving into some of these you know the newer data sources to ask questions that publicly available data just it's just not the data available you know the right data to answer these questions and really pushing this beyond just the violence itself perfect thanks Aaron thank you so much for that that's been that's been great before we go are there any other aspects of your lying about terrorism research that we didn't get to cover cover here that you think people should have as a take-home that people should be aware of from your findings? Or your so research. I think the biggest take-homes, and this is just so I don't have to keep tweeting this out every time an attack <laughs> happens in the news media is like, why hasn't anyone claimed credit yet? Um, is that you know, claiming is, it's the exception, not the rule. Um, so you know, perhaps this, you know, this lack of knowledge of responsibility can help breed fear because it's you know, the insecurity of who was responsible, but trying not to feed into that understanding that claiming is the exception mm -hmm. um, and treating claims with healthy skepticism because particularly because most attacks are not claimed, it's pretty easy to lie and claim credit for somebody else's violence even if the group wasn't actually responsible. So, you know, of course, ISIS being perhaps the most, you know, the, the group that comes to mind most frequently with that, but really treating this with some healthy skepticism um, and considering, you know, how likely is this actually to be the group responsible for the attack. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good.